Good morning all. Lovely to see you all here on this Sunday morning. We're coming towards the end of our series and I think we come to really what is a great passage where we're going to see some amazing things. So let us pray as we come before our awesome God and hear him speak to us and tell us about great things he is doing. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you have gathered us here this morning to hear your word. We thank and praise you that you are a God who converts, that you are the God who changes hearts and minds to want to love you, to want to serve you, to want to do your will. We pray this morning as we look at Nicodemus that you will help us to understand the importance of what Jesus says to him and as we understand that to apply it rightly to our lives that we might live for your sake and live for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my father's great lines in life to me was, never give up, never quit. He used to always say to my brother and I as as kids, don't quit, don't give up. When we were playing sport, he would only ever get angry at us if we failed to do our best, if we failed to try. He didn't care if we won or lost at what we were doing. All that mattered to him is we did not quit. To the point I do remember one sideline where my shoulders were jumping and my father was screaming, get up there, go for it, get it! That was my father's motto and it was a motto that he lived out in his life. I've probably told you this story, but I'll never forget. This has become a family classic of ours. Our skiing story. My father, who took us to ski fields nearly every uh, winter, said, you know, he saw my brother and I skiing and doing parallel skiing. And now my father has a neurodegenerative disorder, which means he can't, uh, has full, he doesn't have full control over his feet. But it didn't bother him. He decided he wanted to ski and he wanted to parallel ski like his sons. So he told the instructor to take him to the top of the mountain so that he could learn to parallel ski. My dad could not ski. His feet were just not up to it. And I remember watching my dad go down the mountain. I went up and down the mountain three times in the time it took my father to do it just once. But he was so committed, he was so focused on his goal, he would not quit that he kept the ski instructor, who was with a private lesson, with him for two hours so that he would make the bottom of the mountain. My father was a great believer, do not quit, persevere. It is a character trait that has been emblematic of his life. It is a character trait that I wish to model in my life. It is a fundamental thing of my father. Do not quit. Now today as we look at Nicodemus, we are going to see that aspect in his life that we actually need to be people who do not quit. That there is no point where we should give up on anybody. And we're going to see why we should not quit, why we should not give up on anybody because we're going to see how powerful God is at bringing about his purpose. We're going to see how God is the one that changes lives. And because our trust and our hope is in God, we are people 
who never quit, who never give up hope, that always want the best for anybody who is before us. Now thus far in the series we've seen how the word of God has brought about some amazing conversions. We have seen God bring into his people some of the most unlikely people. We saw Nebuchadnezzar, king, powerful, arrogant, proud and how God humbles him so that he comes to know God. We've seen Naaman, a man, a leper, outside the kingdom of God, outside the kingdom of God's people. How God, through miracles, through working great miracles in his life, brings him in. We've seen how God has shaken the very earth to bring about the Philippian jail out. We even saw Dave manage to uh, sneakily slip in to uh, this series of women who came into the kingdom of God. And we have seen how God has done marvellous things to bring men and women from across the world into his kingdom. And so we come to today's conversion, who is, as we have said, Nicodemus. But today's conversion is different from everyone we've seen in one respect. And that is, in today's conversion, we see a man who met the real, authentic Jesus. And what is especially interesting about Nicodemus's meeting with Jesus is that when he first meets Jesus, he doesn't fall down and worship him. He doesn't think, wow, Jesus, he's so amazing. He's so special that I must drop everything and follow him. Instead, as we will see, Nicodemus' initial visit only serves to confuse him. And so we're going to mainly look at John chapter 3. We'll look at some of the others at the end, but as we look at it, we'll see what is, what is interesting in this passage isn't so much Nicodemus's conversion. Instead, what makes this passage so interesting is Jesus' description of conversion. Here, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, Jesus explains really what's going on in conversion through the description of the power of conversion. So let's look at this passage and see what it teaches about Nicodemus as Nicodemus meets the real Jesus. And the first thing we see in the passage is that conversion is all about God's new creation. We're going to find in this passage that Jesus uses a lot of Old Testament allusions to describe conversion. And so the passage opens up with this little statement in verse 2. This man, being Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and said, and I just want to stop there for a second. I don't want to focus too much on this, but it should be said that John finds it interesting enough to mention that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and by implication from the darkness. The next time in the gospel where Nicodemus meets Jesus is interesting where Jesus is speaking at the festival of light where Jesus is using the festival to refer to himself as being light in John 7. And so if you know your Old Testament symbology in its festivals, then you see already there is this idea through the conversion of this man coming out of darkness into the light. I don't want to make too much, but it does need to be noted. But then Nicodemus asks his question and Jesus' response confuses him. 
Verse 2, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, at this point, you can imagine Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He comes because he, he has seen these great miracles that Jesus is doing. He's going, wow, there is something amazing about it. There's something going on with this man. And I need to figure out what it is. But by addressing Jesus as rabbi, he shows he doesn't understand who Jesus is at this point. His opening statement calling Jesus a rabbi makes this distinction between Jesus and God, which shows he doesn't get who Jesus is. But then Jesus hits him with his response and Nicodemus' confusion goes up to 11. Jesus replied... Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? You can imagine Nicodemus' surprise at Jesus' comment. Born again? Nicodemus, he's come for a nice theological discussion. But Jesus here cuts to the heart of the matter. The only way someone can enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. Now, we sit here and we hear that phrase and though it might seem a little strange to our ears, being in Christian circles, we get it. But can you imagine Nicodemus hearing it for the first time? You mean I have to be born of a woman again? What does that mean? How can I be born again? What woman would ever want to give birth to a fully grown man? None that I know and that's for certain. But here Jesus is showing the radical nature of conversion. And this is where we come to one of our problems. We have the opposite problem to Nicodemus. Our familiarity with the concept blinds us to its radical nature. Sometimes in our technical age, we can forget the awesomeness of something as regular as the birth of a child. The birth of a child is a marvellous thing. It's a wonderful thing. Being at the birth of all my children was one of the greatest privileges of my life. Holding them in my arms and giving thanks to God for the little bundles of joy that they were knowing all the processes and, the, and having some understanding of the physical processes only enhanced my amazement at the birth of these four beautiful lives into the world. The birth of any child is a testament to the power and majesty of God. And Jesus is saying here that the power at work in conversion is the very same power that is at work in bringing about the birth of every child. Every conversion is a new birth, is a new life. And we should give praise and glory to God for it. And Jesus makes this clear in his description going on, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, here is one of the trickiest passages of the Bible, but I think here what Jesus is describing is the radical power of conversion. And the first aspect of that power is the description Jesus uses of water or his use of water. Now, many people take Jesus' use of water to refer to, refer to the birth process, which sort of fits as Jesus refers to the birth process as his analogy. But I don't think Jesus has on view here birth in talking about the newborn. Instead, what I think Jesus is referring to when he uses the water is God's power of creation. Let me explain. When we looked at that Genesis 1 account, what we see in Genesis 1 at the start, we didn't read it all because there's too much to read, but the earth is covered in water and God draws the waters back He opens the waters up like a curtain on a stage to reveal the earth. In day two, he separates the waters to form the sea and the sky, to create a space for life. Day three, he divides the waters to reveal dry land, which he literally calls earth. Throughout those first three days of that Genesis account, God draws back the water to create space for life on earth. God draws back, drawing back the water is the power of God to bring about creation in the world, in our life. In a similar way, when God delivers Israel from the hands of Pharaoh via the Red Sea, you see God used that same power, he used that creation to bring forth the dry land, to separate the waters. God's breath literally dries the ground, allowing Israel to cross the bed, uh, to cross the bed of the sea. God reveals the land with water rising up on both sides and the nation escapes, the nation is created as it escapes through those waters. And this is what I think Jesus is pointing about with the water. God's same power that brought creation into being in Genesis 1 is the same power that brings about the salvation of Israel as they escape the uh, Pharaoh, is the same power that is at work in bringing about every single conversion. Conversion is an act of God to bring about new creation. One of the problems I've had about the name of this series is it is called Great Conversions. And the reason why I've had a bit of a problem is every conversion is great. Every conversion is a great and marvellous act of God. It is a wonder to behold that we sit here as disciples and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time God converts someone into fellowship with his son, that conversion is the same process that brought about the creation that God had made. Our conversion is to be born of God. Which leads to the second part of Jesus' birth analogy, and is the role of God's spirit. He goes on to say, of the spirit, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. 
Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The second aspect of God's Spirit that Jesus is pointing at is that God is the, is the only one who knows whom he will save. This is somewhat tied to the first lesson that we've heard in this series overall. What is the first lesson that we've heard in this series every week? What's the first lesson? God can save anyone. But also part of that is only God knows whom he will save. And this is what Jesus is talking about with the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You can see it working, but you're not sure where and when it will blow in someone's life. The Spirit can work at any time. And where and how, he knows always what he is doing and we've got to be on the lookout to see whom God is working at, where the Spirit is working. I was talking to this lovely lady this week. I won't mention any names to protect the innocent. But this very dear lady was telling me of this wonderful story of conversion that illustrates this point. She'd known a particular man who'd been living on her street. Let's call him Roger. Not his real name, but anyway. Roger was apparently an awful man. He swore like a trooper. He'd yell at his wife at all hours so loudly that it, all his neighbours could hear him. He'd be drunk, screaming, beating his wife, so much so that his wife would have to go to the neighbours to get help to protect her. He was a thoroughly evil, degenerate and unpredictable man. This lady told me that she would see him down the street and when she would see him down the street walking home, she would never offer him a lift because she was afraid of him. He was the stereotypical person of whom you would think this person would never come to Christ, let alone set foot in a church. Anyhow, after years of abuse and fighting, two little old ladies from the local Baptist church invited Roger to go to the church with them. And for whatever reason, Roger went. And his change at becoming Christian was nothing short of a miracle. Roger went from an uncontrollable brute of a man to a loving, kind, gentle man who truly loved his wife. The drinking stopped, the foul language and the yelling the, that the whole neighbourhood could hear, it ceased. The lady who previously would never drive him home because she was frightened of him Every time she see him, she would stop and offer to give him a lift, of which he would take up many times. This man to whom everyone had seemed the least likely person to ever accept an invite to church, let alone to becoming a born-again Christian, was absolutely changed by the Spirit of God in him. God had moved in this man at God's timing so as that he became a Christian. And this is a big point of this passage, this section about conversion. We don't know where and when God will work in the life of someone. 
But when God's life-giving spirit moves through them, his work will be profound and life-changing. We need to be patient. We need to persevere. We must not give up. There is nobody worth giving up on. Not because we are able, not because we are strong, but because God is powerful. God is strong. God can take the most wicked and vile heart and make it his own. How do I know? He did it for me. He did it in you. He can do it in anyone. Those people in in your life of whom you are not sure of, whom you feel they'll never come around, persevere. Look for signs that God's spirit is blowing in their lives. And the surest sign that the spirit is working in them is change. It's repentance. Repentance is the sure sign that God's spirit is working in someone's life. You might not always see it. You might not, it will not, not always be readily on sign, but look for those signs. Look for those signals and persevere. Trust that God will work his purposes where he wants. And so we come to the third aspect about conversion that we learn from this passage. And that conversion always involves God's judgment. And there are two aspects of, to, that, uh, to that judgment in this passage in terms of conversion. The first is the need for God to remove his judgment from us. And this comes out in verse 14. For just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now this again is an Old Testament image of when Israel travelled through the wilderness after coming out of Egypt. Israel had been complaining to God about their situation. So God sent snakes amongst them in their camp, at which point God instructs Moses to create this symbol of a snake and to raise it up where everyone could see it in the camp. The idea being that when people were bitten by the snake, they could go outside their tent, look up at the snake and live. There wasn't anything magical about the the snake. There was no power in the snake that Moses created. It, just, it was just so that people could do what God commanded them to do. That is, believe his word and they acted on it, then they would live. His people would be saved. And Jesus' point is this. In the same way as Moses lifted up the snake as a symbol of life and that God's judgment had been dealt with through the symbolic sna- uh, death of the snake, Jesus would be lifted up on the cross to take away the sin of the world, to take away its uh, sin's problem against us. Conversion always involves the removal of God's judgment from his people. For just as God took away the sting of the snake's bite from Israel when they looked upon that symbol of the snake, 
So God takes away the sting of sin, that is death, when people come to place their trust in the raised up Jesus. And this cycles back into the first point of conversion, being a new creation. We can sometimes forget the radical power of what is needed to make us right before God. God, when he saves people, uses his mighty power to change us and make us a new creation. That power is also the mighty power that is required to forgive our sins. Jesus' death upon the cross is the mighty power of God to forgive us, forgive the sins we've committed against him. It took God himself to come down and die upon the cross to forgive us our sins. That tells us the serious nature of the sin problem. The radical nature of God's intervention is the stark reminder to us of the depth of the problem of sin. One of the great problems we have in our sinfulness is that we, can some, we sometimes fool ourselves into believing we can fix it. And one of the ways we try to fix our sin is to minimise it so that our solution will work. We constantly delude ourselves into minimising the depth of our sin problem so as to make our solution fit. And when we do this, we are deluding ourselves. In Jesus' death, God takes a massive relational blockage standing or sitting between himself and us and places it on Jesus. And in doing so, he forgives our sins but teaches us just the depth of the problem our sin is. He does this so that we understand just how big the problem we have got in our sin. I was chatting to a godly man this week about miracles and we were commenting on how often we forget that every time God converts someone there is great power working in that person from God that every time God forgives someone that every time a person comes to trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins then they can know for certain that God has worked his mighty power of creation in us to make us and bring us into a right relationship with himself that is a solution we could never provide ourselves. We require God to intervene. Now that's the first aspect of God's judgment we see. The radical nature of the problem of sin requires God's radical solution. The second aspect of God's judgment in this passage is how God applies his uh, salvation to us. We read it at the end of, uh, of the section in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds might not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. 
Now, this passage bookends Nicodemus coming out of the night at the start of the passage, for Nicodemus himself comes to the light, and here the light is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and every person's response to Jesus is not so much an assessment of who Jesus is, but God's judgment and assessment of who they are. God's light of Christ exposes who we are. Without God, we would all prefer to sit in darkness. Pre-conversion, we would all prefer to live and do our evil deeds. Conversion changes us through God's power to love the light. Conversion changes us to love God, to love doing his works. We would not want to live God's way and have our evil exposed except through the power and majesty of God. Conversion changes his people to love God and his glory in everything that we do. The Christian who sees their evil and seeks to change it is the person who is truly converted. And by saying this, we need to remember this aspect about conversion. Conversion is not always a happy experience. In truth, because conversion always involves seeing who we really are, it can often be a gut-wrenching and horrible experience. But it is an experience that we are always thankful for because we know God's power is at work in us. This passage, as I said, has been teaching us about what is involved in conversion. And it is nothing short of the might and strength and power of God to work in amongst his people. And for that we should always be thankful. And for that we should always know every conversion is great. So, following the theme of what we've been looking at this series... Three final lessons that I think are important to look at as we, as we look at this passage. First lesson. What's the first lesson? God can save anyone. You're starting to get it. When you're sick of it, you're almost there. Okay? God can save anyone. God can even save this Nicodemus. And you go, wait a second, Nicodemus is an Israelite. Yeah, but he's an Israelite who doesn't get it. And never got it. We need to always remember, never lose sight of the fact, God can save anyone. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Religion does not save. Religion does not save. Nicodemus is a religious leader in Israel. And though there is definitely theological symbolism in him coming to Jesus in the night, just in terms of normal human behaviour, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night because he desires to figure out who Jesus is without letting anybody else know what's going on. He wants to try and figure out Jesus in a way that won't cost him. As obviously he doesn't want his other fellow religious leaders to know what he is doing. But that is why he's so confused by Jesus. Because in Jesus, when he comes to uh, Jesus, he doesn't understand that Jesus was and is the point of all God was doing with Israel all through the Old Testament. 
Nicodemus doesn't understand that standing before him in Jesus is the very point of his whole religion. Here is the thing that God has been pointing to, has been saying to Israel for millennia, and he stands before Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't get him, doesn't understand him. For us, seeing how Nicodemus, the religious leader of Israel, has absolutely failed to understand his own religion, it teaches us and reminds us religion doesn't save. Our good acts before God are not a sign of our worthiness before God. Instead, they are a sign of God's grace to us and his willingness to change us so that we can be his people. Our good acts are actually God's grace to us. We are never saved because we are Anglican or whatever denomination or wherever church we go to. We are saved by the grace and power of God's work in our lives. Religion, our works, will never save us. Only Jesus saves us. Lesson number three. And this is a practical lesson. Don't lose hope for your loved ones not in Christ. Don't lose hope for your loved ones not in Christ. We need to remember that God chooses the timing of salvation. If you look carefully, as Joe pointed out, you will see that Nicodemus is not a follower of Jesus by the end of chapter 3. We only see that Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus at the end of the gospel. We read in, uh, in John 19. After this, Jesus' death, Joseph of Arathamia, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fears of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths and with fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. I know in this church there are many who have children or loved ones who they want to see come to the faith. And there is this constant tension we always have of wanting to see people give their lives to Christ yesterday and trusting God's sovereignty to work in people in his time and in his choosing. Nicodemus is not a man who understood Jesus when he originally came to him. But at his death, at Jesus' death, it is safe to assume that Nicodemus was a follower. A quiet follower, but a follower nonetheless. We do not know how and when God will work in people. We just know that God chooses to work at people when he sees fit. And when he sees fit, then we need to actually work with God, give praise to God, know that God's power is working through those people. But if we don't see that, we must never give up hope. We must never lose sight of the power and majesty of God. Hear my father's words. Don't quit. Persevere. And the reason we persevere is we know the power of God to work in people, to change them. And that is the great conversion. 
that God creates in all of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are a great and powerful God. We thank you that your power to convert is the power of new creation. We know, Father, we do not possess that power. We know we are totally reliant and dependent upon you and what you have done in your Son to bring people into your kingdom. We ask, Father, this day that we never quit, we never lose hope, that we are always praying and be in perseverance to see every one of your people come to know you. Help us not to lose sight or hope of those we see outside the kingdom but help us to continually pray and trust in your goodness, in your sovereignty, to bring about your purposes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.